You are listening to the Carnegie Tsinghua China in the World podcast, a series of conversations with Chinese and international experts on China's foreign policy, international role, and China's relations with the world. Brought to you from the Carnegie Tsinghua Center for Global Policy, located in Beijing. I'm Tong Zhao, an associate in Carnegie's nuclear policy program based at the Carnegie Tsinghua Center for Global Policy in Beijing. Today, I'm standing in for Paul Hanley to host the podcast. I'm very delighted to be joined by two very senior nuclear policy experts. First, we have Professor Li Ning. Professor Li Ning is a distinguished professor and the dean of School of Energy Research at Xiamen University. He's also director of Asia Development for Terra Power, a company funded by Bill Gates to develop innovative nuclear energy technologies. And we also are very pleased to have Dr. Mark Hibbs. He is a Berlin-based senior associate in Carnegie's nuclear policy program. So thank you both for taking the time to speak with me today on the margins of Carnegie's nuclear energy workshop in Beijing. For now, and uh, probably for many years to come, China's nuclear energy development program is the most ambitious one in the world. Today, China's new nuclear power plant's construction accounts for about half of global total, both in terms of unit number and electricity generation capacity. It is predicted that its nuclear capacity will reach 70 to 80 gigawatts by 2020 and may expand well beyond 100 gigawatts by 2030. This is despite the Fukushima nuclear accident in Japan in 2011, after which many countries have substantially cut down their planned nuclear development. Some people are wondering, how China is going to achieve such a fast growth of nuclear energy and at the same time keep its nuclear energy program safe, secure, and sustainable. One issue that has not received much attention is about the back end of the fuel cycle. Um, in the case of China, does China have a plan for addressing issues related to the back end of the fuel cycle, including spent fuel storage, waste disposal, and decommissioning, decommissioning of retired nuclear reactors. These issues raise serious concerns for people who are suspicious about the sustainability and affordability of nuclear energy in general. These issues have created big problems for many of the most advanced nuclear operation countries. China, in this case, is less burdened in these areas, but in the near future, will face the same set of problems. So what do you think China should better prepare itself for these issues? Well, broadly, China has a sort of a strategy and policy for it. You know, it's a to close the nu nuclear fuel cycle with reprocessing, with intermediate and, and 
uh, low level and high level waste uh, storage, uh, repository, uh, etc., etc. And there's some rough timelines you know, out there in the future. Uh, but, it, but it was um, fairly sort of a road uh, planning in the sense that follows what those other countries have been done in a very broad sort of strategic, you know, broad brush sense. There's a very little uh, sort of a implementation side of details uh, involved with it. So when these the, the large-scale nuclear power construction started up, taking up a lot of resource and attention, these issues kind of slipped. Out of, you know, it was like considered kind of there is a solution, and it's not urgent. But some of the earlier operating power plants are already beginning to see this as a commercial back pressure into their operation. And so they, they started to working on these, and they wanted the government to have a clear uh, strategy and plan uh, to, to deal with those issues. And we are also beginning to study this. We had a sort of three-part symposium in the last uh, two, two and a half years just to deal with the, the, the back end, the waste management problem, and we had inter international experts and the nuclear industry participants in, uh, from, from China to discuss these and expose many of the problems and also exchange many of the ideas because we now have updated technological options to deal with some of the stuff as before. And we also have a lot more lessons to learn. And again, I you know, I hope that the that the government and also the industry decision makers can use the lessons learned and, and these newer options to solve them better. You know, I had an I had a American friend who told me that you know you guys are in a much better position because we back then we didn't know any better so we looked out some 30 40 years and make some plan and we gone through them they don't work please don't repeat our <laughs> mistakes <laughs> you, you you know better and you actually have better tools and solutions available look at them and try to solve them and try to plan ahead and you know solve them with a you know, with a better solution. So you know, I'm I'm not saying this is a sure thing, but I think we have the basis to have a better solution. Um, yeah, I would only add to that um, that the Chinese government industry shortly after it embarked on commercial nuclear power generation back in the early '90s immediately announced shadow of their uh, predecessors in the United States and Western Europe and Japan that were developing nuclear power, that the back end of the fuel cycle would be based on a plan to very soon begin commercial reprocessing of spent fuel and establishment of a plutonium fuel cycle for China's nuclear power plant uh, program. And what we've seen is that the timetable for the realization of those plans has been delayed. That's for the reasons exactly that uh, Li Ning has, has pointed to. Uh, we are now on the cusp of a situation where we could very well, during the period between 2015 and 2050, encounter significant breakthroughs in the way we think about and manage our spent fuel and nuclear materials. I have argued 
that it would be very prudent and, and, and well thought out for China to deeply consider what options it has in moving forward in this direction. And in that regard, I would only um, recall that, uh, and, and this is a point that, that should be understood by the Chinese people, is that the material that we're talking about, the spent fuel, is actually a material which is very easily isolated and contained. If you do not reprocess the material right away, and you afford yourself time to derive a well thought out roadmap for dealing with your spent fuel in the long term. In the meantime, you, you have the, the convenience and the luxury of isolating and containing this material, limiting its, uh, its danger uh, by entering and storing it and, and not uh, moving forward uh, with the processing the material for a while. Uh, that's what uh, most countries in the world, in fact, are doing. And so far, uh, since the early 90s, when China began commercial power generation, it has followed the exact same uh, reasonable, well-advised um, strategy that most other countries have done. Uh, that means that, in fact, during the whole period of time that China has been developing this kind of program, it has not been um, breaking ahead with processing of the material right away, it, it, it instinctively uh, is being cautious and thinking about the long-term implications of fuel cycle policy. And I'm confident that in, in the decades ahead, the Chinese government, uh, together with its industry and its other stakeholders, will come up with a, the most optimal spent fuel strategy that they could possibly derive. And as Li Ning said, China can benefit from the experience that other countries have acquired in this area, including experiences that he alluded to, which um, mean that in the period between about 1970 and about 2000, um, efforts to prematurely develop a closed fuel cycle uh, worldwide did not succeed, uh, primarily because they did not uh, turn out to be cost effective. So, you know, these are uh, a rich legacy of experiences that we have with this, this, uh, this problem, and uh, China is in a fortunate position to be able to choose its future path very wisely. Some of the listeners of our podcast are actually uh, foreign policy experts and international security policy experts who tend to look at things from a, from a different perspective than uh, people who are technical experts. I guess for the Chinese decision makers and the foreign policy experts, one thing they care a lot is what are the national security implications of the fast growth of China's nuclear energy program? Will China's ambitious nuclear energy program increase China's energy dependency on foreign countries? especially taking into consideration the fact that China is not very rich in uranium resources. And in addition to that, it usually requires a lot of resources to ensure that nuclear facilities and radioactive materials are safe and secure 
from the hands of ill-intentioned non-state actors. In the case of the United States, President Obama declared that nuclear terrorism is the number one national security threat. How much a threat do you think China faces from nuclear terrorism? Is the threat real or is it exaggerated? China is increasingly relying on the international market to supply the uranium for some of the power plants. Um, this should not be a concern to the Chinese public. Um, in doing so, China is joining hosts of other nations which likewise are understanding that the most economic way of providing fuel for the reactors is relying on uh, acting in effective markets for nuclear fuel, including natural uranium and uranium enrichment services. The Chinese government is moving in that direction. They are indeed, as some worried people suggest, increasing their reliance on foreign supply for uranium. But this should not be a concern because uranium is one of the most um, frequently found minerals in the it's located in many parts of the world. Most supplies for natural uranium, including for China, are located in extremely stable countries with well-developed uh, industries for extracting uranium and are developing best practices to make sure that uh, uranium is, is being wisely managed and, and uh, that the interests of um, stakeholders in the countries where the uranium is produced are respected. So this shouldn't be a concern. Uh, it's the way of the world. It's part of the globalization process. Uh, instead of concerning that China would become more energy dependent because of this, it's probably going to mean that China will uh, benefit from lower prices for nuclear fuel. Um, this is uh, the reason, the rationale why the market is succeeding is effectively providing fuel for 400-plus power reactors worldwide. Regarding the issue of nuclear terrorism, uh, I think it would be fair to say that uh, not too long ago, in the last several decades, there were some questions asked uh, by China's foreign partners about how secure nuclear materials in China were, principally because China is a very big country. Um, there is a military nuclear program in the country not exposed to a lot of uh, transparency and information. Uh, it's a military nuclear program in China is a, is a matter of national security and information is not provided in great amounts. So it would only be natural that people would ask questions about whether these sensitive nuclear materials in China would be uh, well taken care of. Um, in recent years, what we've seen is uh, a very considerable effort by China to address these concerns, including recently when they have engaged in the nuclear summit uh, process by, among other things, establishing a center of excellence for nuclear security, which will be set up and uh, working with other countries in the Asian region to coordinate activities to improve nuclear security in these countries. Um, there are concerns about nuclear, uh, nuclear security worldwide. China not immune to these concerns. Many countries have them. Um, the, the biggest concern 
is is not um, in China as elsewhere the, the security of nuclear weapons related material uh, so much as the more likely uh, scenario that radiological material uh, such as sources or, or radioactive material which is found in equipment used in hospitals or clinics or universities uh, could be lost or stolen and used um, in a primitive um, device that would scatter radiation and probably not do a great deal of damage but create a, a certain amount of uncertainty and, and panic in local populations. This is a public problem which has emerged uh, in the United States, for example, uh, as early as the 1980s when nuclear regulators found that there were as many as 80 or 90,000 of these sources that were uh, not a, accounted for and, and were not tracked um, by regulators because there was no regime to uh, police these materials and make sure that they were accounted for. Um, the Chinese situation is similar to that where uh, China, like many, many other countries, have many users of radiological materials yeah, China, like other countries, is, including Western countries in the United States, has had to establish a regulatory regime for these materials to make sure they're accountable and are being used safely. That's part of the, the, the problem in nuclear security is to make sure that all these uh, materials, uh, nuclear materials and radiological materials, are basically under lock and key and that they're, they're accounted for. But China, uh, we are assured by um, some observers, including NGOs, who are studying this uh, at close range, that China is making a considerable process, uh, a considerable, uh, that China is making considerable uh, progress in addressing these issues and is engaging with the rest of the world in uh, eliminating this, this threat. So yeah, Mark, uh, that's a very comprehensive answer. So I'll follow up very briefly. You know, uranium is worldwide is not as scarce as people thought at the beginning of the age of nuclear uh, power. And also, it turned out to be not as scarce in China as many of the people thought, though. It, it was not a fully explored uh, natural resources in China, and there were some recent big finds in China. And also, uh, many of the uh, uranium-rich uh, resources are in places where it's geologically stable and friendly to China. So, and, and also because, you know, one thing about nuclear fuel is you have a very small amount you can easily store, but it'll supply your energy for a very long, long time. <laughs> so it's not like the other things that can be easily disrupted. So from that perspective, I'm not, you know, I don't think we should be overly concerned uh, with uranium resource. Uh, but just as well, if we were to go into a bigger expansion of nuclear power for a long time, I think technological advances will be needed to increase the utilization of uranium, like the technology we're working you know, with Bill Gates, Dragon Wave Reactor, and some other technologies to increase the uranium utilization by a factor of 5, 10, or even 50. Okay, so we are talking about really lots of uranium resources uh, if that, those technologies were realized. In terms of nuclear uh, terrorism, uh, 
it was not a very high priority uh, in China. In 2008, uh, during the Beijing Olympic time, it was barely you know, something that the Chinese government and the security forces paid much attention to. And the U.S. and other countries were trying to prod China into installing more detections and stuff. It wasn't, you know, you look at the society and stuff, it hasn't been a fairly uh, high visibility topic nor I think some of the separatist terrorism, etc., would have that kind of a capability and access. And a lot of these uh, local disturbances, etc., were not the terrorists, but looked rather sort of a social uh, dis dissatisfaction. Uh, so, you know, I'm a little bit concerned, you know, to, to say that's a big problem publicly because it might become a self-fulfilling prophecy if you emphasize the, the severity and consequences of it. Uh, but I do wish that uh, you know internally uh, we are paying more, increasingly more attention to it. I think you know what Mark said about China establishing the uh, center of excellence on safeguards, etc., are steps in the right direction. Thank you very much. Uh, this has been a very interesting and informative discussion. Thank you both, Professor Leaning and Dr. Mark Hibbs, for spending time with us today. That's it for this edition of the Kangi Qinghua China in the World podcast. If you'd like to read or learn more about China's nuclear energy development plans, you can find more articles, events, and podcasts on our website at www.kangiqinghua.org. I encourage you to visit and see the work of all our scholars at the Kangi Qinghua Center. Thanks for listening and be sure to tune in next time.